1: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
3: Monster House presents.
4: Hey there, Monster Talkers. I recently started a project to collect all the books we've discussed on Monster Talk into one useful, sortable data table. The Monster Talk Library Project will always be a work in progress, so long as we're making new episodes. But you can go in and search the list and sort by title and author and find the associated episode along with links to the actual books. I've made it an easy, short URL to get to it. You can just go to bit.ly forward slash Monster Talk Books. That's all one word, all lowercase. Bit.ly forward slash Monster Talk Books. And there's also a link to it at the top of our website at monstertalk.org. Thanks to everyone who has suggested this idea over the years. I always thought it was a good idea, and I'm excited to actually have it working for you. Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monstertalk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience And the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact, and only take a moment.
2: Staffordshire's had a whole crop of flying saucers. Spots in the sky, lights in the sky, strange things. But the strangest of all was seen one day over this cottage. Mr. and Mrs. Rustenberg were living there, quietly, out in the country. And, well,
1: what, you just tell me what you saw.
3: Well, it was one ordinary day. I was waiting for my husband to come home from work, and my two sons went to cipher to school, and I was getting changed, and I heard this terrific noise. It was just like a giant cauldron of water being poured onto a a fire-ish sort of noise, you know. And my first reaction was, oh, the children. I thought maybe a plane was crashing or something like that. And I... uh, slipped my jumper on and went outside to find my two sons lying flat on the ground in the garden in front of the house shouting mommy mummy, there's a flying saucer well naturally i just said come on don't be stupid it's
0: actually quite
3: unlike anything we've ever seen before a giant hairy creature part ape, part man
0: Monster Talk.
4: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
4: When we recently covered the Osborne Children's Book of Ghosts, we had the opportunity to also talk about one of their other World of the Unknown series books, UFOs. And what follows is a very unusual episode of Monster Talk because the representative we got to speak to isn't the author of the book but is actually a super fan who still has his copy from the 1970s. He's entertainer, amateur astronomer, comedian, and impressionist John Culshaw. He's been on TV and radio extensively, notably on the BBC series Dead Ringers and the continuing radio adventures of Doctor Who. So what follows is a wistful look back at the less conspiratorial UFO world of the 1970s with half a dozen additional voices joining us along the way. Like their Ghosts book, The Osborne UFO book is gorgeously illustrated and provides a sense of wonder and delight as it explores exciting UFO cases. As is often the case, Karen and I are so skeptical of most UFO reports and their possible extraterrestrial implications that sometimes we can forget what it's like to just have that open-eyed wonder of children. John was so enthusiastic and exuberant that it was hard not to find his attitude infectious. Likewise, the Osborne book's open minded tone and wonderful illustrations don't come down too hard on whether they think UFOs are real or fake or terrestrial or extraterrestrial, but they do make you want to learn more about the universe and our place in it. And I really do plan to do one of the experiments we talk about in the book if I can manage it, and I'll post my results. A quick note Karen and I are planning to do another Monster Talk Live on Sunday, April 4th, so keep an eye out for that because we're going to be talking about vampire cases. And I don't know the one Karen's covering, but the one I'm going to be talking about is so weird and cinematic that I'm still shocked nobody's made a movie about it. Also, Patreon supporters will notice that I've dropped a new episode of our miniseries, Big Footage, in which I covered the 1976 film Sasquatch, The Legend of Bigfoot. And while doing research for that, I ran across some really interesting stuff related to the Patterson film that we will be covering on a regular episode of Monster Talk coming up soon. I'm pretty excited about that because finding out new information about the PGF at this point felt really weird. One more thing. We do ask at one point what happened to the original author of the Osborne UFO books. While checking to see what happened to Ted Wilding White, I did come across a couple of articles that he wrote back in the 1970s. He wrote about space and space-related businesses for the newspapers at the time, and he also wrote Jane's pocketbook of space exploration. I've attached a couple of PDFs to the show notes if you're interested in looking at his writing from the 1970s. He turned out to be alive, but chose not to participate in the promotion of this reissue. So at the time of this recording, he's alive and well, but declined to participate in the media for this reissue. But we wish him well. But now let's look to the skies and get ready as we join John Colshaw and several incarnations of The Doctor To discuss the Osborne children's book UFOs
0: Monster Dog. Hello there.
2: Hello. 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 Uh, hello. At last, I've, I've taken a step forward into a larger world. <laughs> I learned, I... <laughs>
4: yes.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, nice to meet you. My name's Karen.
2: Hello, this is John here.
4: Hello, and I'm Blake. Lovely to talk to you all. Thank you, Blake. Thank you. So it's it's nice to have you on. We I've been watching your YouTube videos this morning.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Yes. Quite a lot of fun over the years as the interesting characters come and go. I know you're at least what I would call UK famous. How would I introduce you to the American audience? Uh, well, on the, the, the shows that I've, I've, I've impersonated a lot of presidents over the years. Uh, George Bush, uh, senior, junior. We love the American characters. We really, really do.
0: I'm from Australia originally, but I've been living here in the States for about 16 years. Um, so, you know, often we're, we get a lot more exposure to uh, English personalities and politicians and characters. And so uh, I might be more familiar with some of your stuff.
2: If ever I uh, spontaneously take on a character voice, I'll make sure it's a sort of a global one. You know, maybe Ozzy Osborne. Perfect. Like that, a, see, that's a good one. We've got yeah, it all <laughs> <covered>. yeah. <laughs> Ozzy would be great. I, I bought George Lucas's house, you know, and I, I think it was haunted. But I, I think i freaked <laughs> all the
3: ghosts out. I don't think
4: I don't know how much you know about ghosts and haunted things, but the uh, uh, we've talked about it on the show, Robert the Doll. And uh, this this cursed doll that's uh, – or supposedly cursed doll that, that is in Florida. And uh, I guess he's uh, on a new series they're doing with uh, Ozzy and Jack uh, looking at different stuff. They're doing a cursed item episode.
0: So, really?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
4: uh. By the way, we, we, we saw Robert the Doll over the holiday uh, Christmas and uh, we did not ask permission. You're supposed to ask permission before you get your photo and we didn't. And obviously now everybody's suffering for it. My bad.
0: Blake is to blame.
2: It's such a fascinating thing. Ghosts have always fascinated me. I I, I can't wait for the time. It's probably going to be in about 60 years or something like that. When science will have figured out what's going on, what sort of unmeasurable wavelengths that we are out of our reach at the moment. That are driving it. That's very really hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like the idea
4: that you think science will be going in sixty years. That's great. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the level well, of optimism we, we need today.
0: <laughs> we we also know that you are fascinated with UFOs, which is why we've brought you on the show today.
2: I know once once again I would I would I've never actually seen one. It remains a, a great ambition of mine to see one. But I've always found them mystical. I've always found them fascinating. I think they contribute to giving the world a sense of wonder. And when you really look at those cases, especially the really bewildering ones, that very small percent that we really cannot explain, uh, they are just so spellbinding. And perhaps they do Mm -hmm. give a clue as to a time in the future, decades, who knows, hundreds of years from now, when the human race is part of a galactic community where we know what the other civilizations are and we've earned the right to interact with them. They might just leave us be for the moment. The human response collectively might just be a little bit unwieldy and unpredictable. I think they might leave us for another hundred years or so or just interact very subtly. But what a fascinating subject. And ever since I was a small boy, I've I've been gripped by the subject of UFOs.
0: So, John, we had uh, Christopher Maynard on a couple of weeks ago. And we interviewed him in regards to the world of the unknown ghosts. And uh, so we've brought you on the show today to talk about the world of the unknown, the usborn or usborn. I think Blake was wanting to know how you would pronounce that in the UK too. Is it use-born or Usborn
1: or Osborn? Yes, that's, uh, Osborne.
0: Osborne. 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 Okay.
1: A little bit like Osborne, I mean like not Aussie. The Osborne, but with a yeah. letter U, <laughs> Osborne.
0: <laughs> uh, so we, we brought you on the show to talk about the world of the unknown UFOs. And uh, so to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, because you wrote the forward for the, the 2020 version of this book, could you tell us a little bit about your association with the book?
1: Yes, I bought this book for myself for the first time in 1977, when I was nine years old. It was one of those that you were just drawn to. Uh, In this era, I I loved programs such as Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, Mm -hmm. The Unexplained Magazine, um, a wonderful BBC documentary called Out of This World, presented by a very sort of enigmatic reporter called Hugh Burnett, uh, with fascinating interviews with fabulous UFO experts such as Gordon Crichton. And I was fascinated in this world. And I spotted the book, and I always kept it with me. I, I bought it for about... 25 pence in 1977. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a a Bible to me, really. I kept it with me all the time. A handbook, in case I ever saw a UFO. I would wander out into into the garden or some of the nearby farmer's fields and country tracks, especially on clear days. And I would scan the skies, hoping to see a UFO. So far, I never have. But in case I did, I always kept this book with me so I could... Look something up rather quickly or check the details off. Check it against what I may have seen. I'm still doing that now, actually. It remains my greatest ambition to see a really good UFO.
4: It's a surprisingly comprehensive book. It really covers quite a breadth of information. And the funny thing is, to me, I mean, this book came out in 77, but there's a few big cases that have come out since then. But a lot of the material in here is the same sort of thing you would still see if you watch a a current UFO program.
0: It is, yeah.
1: Yes, it it really is. These stories have stayed relevant and they are just as bewildering now. Perhaps some of them even more bewildering. But I did always appreciate the way that this book was written. It credited its young readers with a good sense of inquisitiveness. Yes. And Mm -hmm. a good sense of intelligence. It never patronised. And it encouraged you to go out and discover things for yourself. Always written with a sense of scientific plausibility. Um, It it was never too far-fetched or outrageous. There was always a a very reassuring attitude to the writing, which was, okay, well, this is what we're seeing. This is how it appears. Let's take the information we do have and let's consider what this could be, what could be going on here. Um, And I loved the tone that they struck in doing that.
4: Yeah, it it did remind me very much of the same tone as the Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, where he's a sceptical guy, but he's open to testing and checking these things out. And, you know, he he doesn't dismiss people out of hand.
1: No, he doesn't. You trusted so much what was coming from him. Uh, He he was such a a superb person to uh, examine this subject. And his view on it was something that was very valuable. You really took it seriously. And the UFO's episode of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, I can remember him saying, I have been lucky to see several good ones. Many can be explained. <laughs> but the, three that, the 3% that cannot are truly bewildering. Um, he approached it with such a, an attitude of solidity, if you like, that that mm-hmm. just added to the fascination.
0: So, John, you haven't seen a UFO before, and you've said that you would love to see one. So would you classify yourself as a, a believer or sceptic
1: when it comes to oh, UFOs? Uh, I'm, an, I'm an absolute believer. I, um, I absolutely believe that there are alien civilizations out there in the galaxy and in the wider universe. The, the odds to say otherwise uh, seem absurd when we consider the building blocks of life just as we know it. Hydrogen, oxygen, carbon... These are some of the most, well, the most common elements and compounds in the universe. Uh, the building blocks of life are everywhere, um, and I am quite sure that life is probably more of an inevitability than a possibility. And some civilizations will be many millions of years older than our own, and I can perfectly imagine them just casually observing, but perhaps not interacting with the human race just yet. I suspect we're not quite ready. As I often imagine, um, I'm sure an intelligent alien race would consider human beings and their reaction en masse to be perhaps a little bit unwieldy at the moment and a little unpredictable.
4: They would be saying, my goodness, they haven't even figured out ghosts yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ready in another 60 years.
1: (laughs) But yes, I I think it will be a wonderful moment when that is put beyond doubt that uh, life exists elsewhere in the universe. And I I would hope that it would happen in that glorious close encounters of the third kind kind of way. That's something I'd love to, to witness. But I suspect it may be far more steady in the way that it comes in. I think perhaps the presence of microbes in the Venusian atmosphere with the phosphine discovery recently, perhaps that's just the start maybe more water discovered on Mars, microbes, it might be a gentle thing. Once we can establish, one, establish beyond doubt that yes, life, even simple life, took hold independently on another planet other than the Earth, once we know that, we can extrapolate on it with a lot more certainty that life can take hold anywhere in the universe. We're edging towards that, I think.
4: I think so too. In these cases... Uh, that they cover in the book, which, again, they cover the the idea of uh, the close encounter model from J. Allen Hynek. And then there's cases in here that are at least, well, all through the the, the classic three kinds. Now, I think the, the close encounters scale has been extended by other authors to the fourth kind. But um, I think uh, the lights in the sky, the seeing a craft, and the actually seeing aliens – Uh, All those kind of cases are covered in the book. Were there cases that you read about that were particularly significant to you or really that still haunt you today or you find compelling?
1: Oh, yes, indeed. I I I love the tale of the Hopkinsville goblins. Mm, Me too. uh, The The favorite. (laughs) Um, They are are wonderful, wonderful creatures. Uh, I wonder if they were creatures that were helping another civilization. Maybe they were the scouts just going out to take a look And in the the book, in the Osborne UFOs book, there is a page which explores what their home planet might look like, given their appearance, the large eyes and the ears, what sort of conditions on a planet would require you to have those. So that was a a wonderful um, feature that inspired a a column I wrote for Sky at Night magazine over in the UK for six years called Exoplanet Excursions. This is where we take the details that we know of confirmed exoplanets, and we try to imagine what the conditions might be like if you are physically there or physically able to observe it in some detail. So I love the the Hopkinsville goblins. There was another story about uh, an alien encounter which was in a Renault car factory in Argentina in 1972. And these creatures were very haunting-looking creatures indeed, very tall, seven foot in height, with pale silvery skin, um, piercing eyes, seen in uh, the sort of washroom areas of a car factory at night. You know, just imagine walking around the corner and stumbling into something like that. These give you... It's like a scene from Doctor Who or Quatermass. It's fascinating, wonderful stuff. You put yourself in that position. If you came face to face with a situation just like that, how would you feel? How would you react? It's the sort of fear you rather enjoy.
4: Would it be presumptuous to ask you about the artwork in the book, but uh, to answer in the voice of Tom Baker?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, exactly. I mean, many of the uh, depicted in uh, Houseborn World of the Unknown UFOs were very much like some of the blueprints that Philip Hinchcliffe would draw For Adventures in Doctor Who, uh, the world of Sutek and uh, the area where the Zygons occupied. Many of these were broadly similar. It's no surprise. uh, (laughs) You
4: are killing me. That is fantastic.
3: (laughs) (laughs) If I attempted to
1: speak like that the whole time, I would. Yeah. 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 If
0: you could, yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. So, John, you mentioned that you had a a column in an astronomy magazine. Could you tell us a little bit more about your interest in astronomy?
1: Yes, I love that Carl Sagan said that astronomy is a very humbling (laughs) and uh, (laughs) character-building, which it it really is. um, The way that astronomy, it's very good for the soul, and it connects you to the ecosystems across the solar system and galaxies that we are part of and it's so good to just experience that and and feel that and to, um, to observe Jupiter through binoculars simply see the little four dots of light which are the Galilean moons to look at Saturn through a telescope and see the rings and know that that is the real object that you're seeing, it's not just a diagram and just to contemplate what is out there, what we don't know what we can't possibly know and the mystery of the universe. And astronomy is a wonderful way to take you forwards to that. I'm utterly fascinated by exoplanets and just how utterly different they could be to what we're familiar with on Earth. Maybe in some cases, how similar and what a joy it would be, what a fascination to be able to actually visit these worlds. I wonder what year it will be when human beings can actually travel to some of these Kepler planets to... 55 Cancri E to the uh, to the Trappist system and witness neighbouring planets in a similar way to how we see our own moon in our own sky. These alien vistas, these alien worlds, these alien visions. You just want to step into you just want to step into a
3: TARDIS and observe them. Yes, <laughs> I want to see it. The Master wants to conquer it, but I just want to observe it. <laughs>
4: I just want to escape to Barnard Star before the Vogon Constructor Fleet gets here. I... <laughs> so, as an astronomer or as an amateur astronomer, I've often heard it said that the reason amateur astronomers don't spot a lot of UFOs is that they're very good at figuring out what things are. Is that <laughs> track to your experience? The-
1: Yes, I think it it probably, it probably does. Um, Very often you might see a satellite or an iridium flare, which might just get you going for a few moments full of hope. Maybe this is the moment, but then, oh yes, it's a a satellite, it's something else. It's nice just to hold on to that freetone, just for a few moments. Um, That's why those UFO cases that the astronomers and the likes of Arthur C. Clarke cannot explain. That's why they are so wonderful and valuable. Um, the astronomers who don't have those answers to certain cases, those are the real intriguing ones.
0: Well, I love uh, the double-page spread in the book about mistaken identity that goes into uh, a lot of UFO reports and uh, just natural explanations, things like parachutes or uh, balloons or uh, even ball lightning. It covers a lot of different natural phenomena.
1: Yes, the effect of spotlights, searchlights, uh, ball lightning, that's another fascinating topic altogether. Um, Mm -hmm. The planet Venus, uh, another one, that's a very useful thing in in the book to just check against. If you do have a sighting of your own, it's very useful to be able to just tick those off the list. Um, And it's, it's quite nice that they did look into that area as well, those that can be faked or those that fool us or those which are really quite ordinary. Important to have that balance in there, I think. A very useful couple of pages there.
4: No, quite. I, I was, as an American skeptic, though, I was disappointed because I thought everything was swamp gas and there's not a word about swamp gas in here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's,
1: that's just in the opening moments of a of a sci-fi scene, just to set the mystery, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I emphasize in conclusion that I cannot prove in a court of law that marsh gas is the full explanation of these sightings but it does appear to me extremely likely and furthermore i must read to back this point up i am after all an astronomer and not a chemist did you
4: notice i had actually forgotten this but as you're reading through you might be like me and you're drawn to the stories of ufos and aliens But there's a a surprising amount of arts and crafts in this book. (laughs) There's a, there's, you there's a pyramid power experiment to build your own pyramid and try to preserve bacon, uh, which I have to say, I have all the uh, things I need to do that experiment. And also there's a, uh, build your own UFO. Um, so I I believe I'm going to try to do both of those and, and I'll post a video of my results, but, uh, I I, I don't know what my wife will think, but I'm going to try. I have never actually done a practical experiment on pyramid power. You know, being very skeptical, I don't believe in it. But given the opportunity to make a little paper pyramid and put some bacon in my garage and let it go rancid, how could I pass that up?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's always nice to uh, set about a task that will eventually result in somebody saying to you, what are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is literally the basis for my marriage. It's a, it's
0: <laughs> a daily thing in his household, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> That's a lovely aspect in the book. Part of, uh, you know, inspiring the young readers and sending them off on a path to um, make their own discoveries in this, uh, in this area of the phenomena. To be set a task like that is, is a step along the way to making your own discoveries. So, yes, nice that it was such um, an amusing way to do that.
0: Yeah, I think I was about uh, six or seven when I came across this book first. And, um, you know, I think it's suitable for kids as young as that age uh, through to us
1: adults. Yes, it really is. It's, uh, it's amazing how reading the book again now and the tone doesn't seem... Overly childlike at all. You it, it's you can read it perfectly comfortably with your adult brain. um it, It's not patronizing. It, it's not written in a any kind of as if it's to a primary school student. Yeah, but that that tone is pretty succinct and and crisp. And yes, it doesn't doesn't feel out of place to look at it with your your grown up head on.
4: No, yeah, I, I think in fact it's got a, such a lovely mix of science. And mystery—that it's the kind of thing that would prompt a kid to really want to investigate more and you know, on mm-hmm. their own, you know—and like to leave yeah. those things it's open to investigation. This is not a closed answer book. This is an open answer book. Um, did, but I, I'm curious, though, how how did you end up becoming a spokesperson for this book republishing?
1: The very quick action of social media. <laughs> I, I noticed it on. Um, I noticed uh, the, the the ghost edition had been reissued uh, and the brilliant Reese Shearsmith had written the foreword there. And I posted a photograph of my own copy of the UFOs book um, in response to Anna Powers, who did so much to, to get these back on. And um, she replied very quickly said, well, yes, we should, we shall see what we can do there. We shall follow on that. And that led to me being asked to write the, the foreword that, that, gave away that I'd had my copy of this book when I was a, a lad in 1977 and I was nine years old. Uh, and that I still looked at it now. I still had my copy. So yes, I was invited to write the foreword, which I was very honored to do.
4: That's nice. I assume you did not cut out the pyramid, uh, from your old copy. <laughs> no, I
1: just, after us having talked about it, I think I might give that a go. <laughs> Or i might just leave sleep so- the bacon in the refrigerator.
0: Yeah, or eat it. I- <laughs> so you still have the, the same uh, copy that you had as a child?
1: I do. It's a little dog-eared and a little worn out, but it's quite nice to have it next to the new edition. Um, and <laughs> back in those days, in 1977, 78, I could have had no idea at all that uh, my favorite book would have a regeneration and I'd be asked to write the foreword for it. I don't think my nine-year-old self would ever have believed that.
4: That's wild. The, the, yeah, I, Go ahead. Sorry, Karen.
0: Okay. I was just going to say, I, I had uh, my original copy is long gone. Um, I had some of the other um, uh, Osborne series too for the haunted houses and vampires. And I found that the pages fell out. So with the, the glue didn't keep the pages in. So over the years, I just read them so many times that they fell apart.
1: <laughs> yeah, isn't that the greatest tribute you can have to a book, that you read it so often over and over again that it actually wore out and fell to bits? Yes, absolutely. That's the ambition <laughs> of every book, I am sure, to be read and cherished to that mm-hmm. extent. Is I think that's a very glorious thing for a book.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because... But the way you were describing it though, it does evoke that feeling that every time you, you, you look at the book, you think about certain topics in a different way. You have a different slant on it, your imagination might come up with a different thing, it might spark a different thought. So no wonder you keep on going back because it just keeps you it just keeps you thinking, it keeps your mind active, it keeps you asking all of those questions and you think of it a different way each time. Mm-hmm.
4: It, the, the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins case was one that also really uh, – it stuck in my mind. And we, we did a – I did like a three-episode deep dive into the history of the case. And I realized when I was looking at some of the uh, material for the case that there at the time of the report, there were a lot of skeptics saying, based on the evidence that was at the site, that they thought it might have been made up because the uh, – the holes in the screen window were not consistent with what they thought would happen if someone fired a 20 gauge shotgun or 22 rifle through the screen and uh a little bit more than a year ago i had i realized that i had in my possession um a screen a 20 gauge shotgun and a 22 rifle uh, <laughs>
0: I <laughs> so, I
4: you know, being from the United States, of course, I mean that's like mandatory. Yeah. It's you know uh. <laughs> anyway, I went out and did an experiment and I, I haven't published my findings, but I can tell you that my findings were that the holes that I produced with those weapons were completely consistent with what the people in Kentucky reported. So, I wh- whether or not there were really aliens there or not, I'm I'm confident they really did shoot through the screens with the weapons described. So, I think that's kind of fun.
1: Yes, it was described that, uh, that the sound that the bullets made um sounded like they were being fired into a bucket.
4: Yes, I think yes. was
1: a description. It's um, a
4: peculiar case. It really
1: is. <laughs> <laughs>
4: like i I think like the the one one thing that I find interesting is if you look at the old photos of the of the farm, the only outside lights was a single bulb hanging off the porch um it, its it's so it was really poorly illuminated, but i I got the impression that it was an extremely frightening experience, like even though I'm very skeptical about it being aliens, I think they yeah. really did see something peculiar that night and really did fire a lot of gunfire. And really were terrified, really did go get the cops. And, and uh, it's, it, 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 I think the, the people, whatever they saw, they absolutely experienced something that they would never experience again. It was a one-time, very peculiar event.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those reactions really did seem to be utterly genuine. This was absolute terror, absolute fear, as you would have in such circumstances that they weren't simply people making up a story or seeking notoriety it was the polar opposite of that this, this was a very uh, bewildering terrifying experience
4: absolutely oh you know what I, I'll, I'll self-plug here uh, we'll, we'll put a link to our previous episodes in the show notes so if you're coming to this episode and haven't heard that before you can hop on over there and check those out
0: so looking at the credits it says it was written by Ted Wilding White what happened oh, yeah. to Ted what's the story about ted
1: well i don't know but we're very we're very thankful to him we are very very thankful to him and um yes i must look that up actually i I must look look that up
0: yeah i just was curious to find out uh what uh what his story is with the book and how he came to write the book and what's happened to him and if he's written any other books about UFOs because it seems like there's a very large group of people who were involved in consultancy and um, additional writing and illustration Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah just never never actually heard of Ted whereas Chris is very well uh connected to the ghosts version and um so yeah we're we're curious about the author
1: yes that would be that would be good to know that would be very good to know That should be part of my homework to go and do some <laughs> yeah. research there. I shall go. I shall go and find out. But yes, we're very we're very grateful to him. Obviously, that goes without saying.
4: Oh yeah, and, oh, yeah. and the art is. I, I mean, I think with all the Osborne books, the the art is one of the most impressive parts. But I just, mm-hmm. I some of these, the, they're they're paintings, but some of them are almost photorealistic, and they are so evocative and they, they just especially like the the, the um, uh, what would you call that uh, hypothetical aliens these sort of like astrobiology sections like it's, it's just so interesting Hello I'm Paul Giamatti and I'm Stephen Asma Each week on Chinwag we dig into the weird topics you wonder about that you care about the stuff none of us are totally sure of like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness,
0: Philosophy
3: Some people
0: enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs>
4: so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the Big Dinosaur Podcast.
0: Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents.
4: Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming.
0: Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution.
4: Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases.
0: A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh,
4: the way these pieces come together. And I. Again, they almost look like photographs, and they do have the ability to put photographs in here. There's sections in there where are photographs, but they mm. also they've just done these lovely painstaking paintings, and I just I think it really makes the books amazing. Um mm-hmm. the, You've got the uh the uh, uh, the cover of the book has what well, has your picture on it now because I got the reprint, but the,
1: <laughs> it's it's got <laughs> yes, it's lovely to know what I'd look like if I was a postage stamp.
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> with, with, with a UFO in the background. Exactly. It's got this exactly.
4: Geor- the George Adamski, uh, uh I think people sometimes call it the, the lampshade UFO, but it's got these sort of flying saucers rendered as though uh, real physical aircraft. They look
0: great. Very classic, Yeah, classic ones. Yeah.
4: You know, they remind me of the I Want to Believe poster on the X-Files.
0: Oh, yes. yes yeah. yeah. Yes.
1: Yes. There is something about those illustrations, exactly as you described, that... that they're rather beautiful. The artistic nature of them is a, a very beautiful thing. It was pleasing to, to look at, and uh, it, it gave the, the, the books that strong identity. It was part of their identity. And pleasing when you're a, a, a child to look at those kind of illustrations that have that vibrancy that just pays into your imagination and keeps you with it, and alongside the photographs and the diagrams. Um, yeah, it's a, a lovely part of the identity of it there.
0: And in looking at the credits, too, there were eight illustrators, so that's quite a team of people working on this.
1: (laughs) Yes, you can just imagine them there in their uh, studio um, doing all of the experimental preparatory studies and um, creating all of those um, images. Interestingly, um, I say I've I've never seen a UFO. Um, My elder brother, Jim, he and his family did see a fantastic UFO. And my brother is a very um, level-headed, logical-thinking engineer. And this, back in 2009, one of those sort of... They were almost as... Jellyfish UFOs hovered over their home in Almskirt, Lancashire. Uh, a huge thing. It seemed to be about the size of a football stadium above them. Whenever he describes it, the sense of how mysterious and bewildering it was to, to to him with a logical engineer's mind. He described the sections rather being like, like a citrus fruit, like an orange. Yeah. In the mm-hmm. centre of it, there was almost like a molten area that was s- swirling around. Far, far, far too big to be any kind of Chinese lantern or a hot <laughs> air balloon. Uh, And and there was quite a lot of these types of craft described around about the 2009 period. So I don't know if anybody's ever seen anything similar to that. I think i sent across some of his uh, descriptions of it. It might be useful at another time. But um, that was was a a very, very strange incident that that he described.
4: Almost everything in here is talking about a material phenomena that is... You know, probably an extraterrestrial hypothesis. Right. So uh, but I think in the world of ufology, there's been some interesting splits from the uh, and I guess this actually goes back to like Jacques Vallée, but you've got the people who go, well, that's a one possible cause of this. And another might be, what if these are from another dimension? And, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I or, or uh, are they perhaps supernatural in some way? You know, I think my mom always thought they were demonic, you know. Bless your heart. So,
0: <laughs> 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 but uh, That's yeah. a wonderful yeah. story, though. That, that's really good fun.
1: He and his wife and son witnessed it. And they are mystified as to why nobody else in the town saw this. It yeah. seems to be... Hugely unreported
0: mm.
1: and a thoroughly strange thing. There's one diagram in the Osborne book, which is the most similar thing to what, to what they saw. where okay. the, There was a sort of um, a central part, which, which is where all the, what appeared to be molten activity was going on. And this enormous shell around it, where you could see inside this, and scorch marks were were, were visible. How? Oh. But clearly it, it was it, it was not any kind of hot air balloon, any kind of Chinese lantern, far, far, far too big for that. The only thing I could ever think of describing it from what I've heard, you have to go to some
3: Doctor Who plot. I'll have to borrow the voice of Tom Baker. <laughs> yes, an enormous, <laughs> an enormous organic creature. You find these, they, they live in the atmosphere of super-Earths almost like an amoeba and uh, digesting some of the, uh, that kind of plankton that exists in the very thick atmospheres of super-Earths. Sometimes they can cross from one other dimension into another, just have a quick exploratory flight in the planet Earth, rather like an excursion, rather like a quick trip just to observe. And then they realize they're in the wrong dimension, and very quickly they head back
1: to uh from where they emanated. I'm, I'm going to go to sci-fi to make, um, that seems to be the most plausible description of that incident.
4: Yeah, that Sagan uh, in his Cosmos series uh, talked about the possibility of uh, high atmospheric uh, life forms on, I think, Jupiter. Um, but yeah. this, this the same concept that, that maybe the core of those giant planets is too uh, too hostile for life, maybe. But but in the atmosphere, you might have all of the chemical uh, requirements for life, plus the energy. So it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's really intriguing. I, I it would be wonderful if we could find uh, some kind of life. I don't even care if it's intelligent, uh, just any kind of other self replicating, self organizing sort of molecules in our solar system outside of just mm-hmm. DNA. You know, mm-hmm. I'd like to believe yeah. that there's. That there's other possible molecules that could also, you know, contain information and replicate. That'd be great.
1: It would be, if we could just know that. It, w- it would move the um, it, it, w- it would move the discussion and the subject on so so wildly. It really would. And the way you were describing there, um, those certain areas of Jupiter being discovered on Venus. Maybe there are these localized Goldilocks zones on otherwise very hostile worlds.
0: Have you had a lot of people contact you and tell you their their thoughts about the book and how much they love the book? Have you had a lot of contact with readers?
1: Yes, indeed. It's it's wonderful. I feel I've been uh, welcomed in by a whole new community uh, speaking (laughs) to you now, for example. This is a a wonderful part of it. I've I've done the Folklore podcast as well.
4: Oh, we like them, yep,
1: yep. Yeah, they're they're good neighbours. Wonderful. Uh, just people who have this like-minded curiosity, sense of discovery, and just who mm-hmm. love to, you know, we just love to put our minds together on this subject. And it, 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 there's something so rewarding about doing that. So yes, I've been delighted by uh, the number of people who've um, who've come forward and been so so welcoming, and to have the chance mm-hmm. to uh, have discussions uh, such as we're having now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I'm
1: very grateful
0: for that. Yeah, <laughs> it's wonderful to see the the ongoing popularity of these books, both both the the ghost book and the UFOs book. Um, the, you'd think that they would be seen as dated nowadays, but uh, no, they've really uh, lasted for for decades.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Um, that they, they really they haven't dated at all, and as in, that's the wisdom with which they were written and the tone that was taken. Uh, it wasn't sensationalist it was really rooted in that scientific plausibility and uh, with with a healthy curiosity and in a very fast-moving more flimsy selfie-taking world now um, (laughs) it's lovely to have that sensibility and, and to see to what extent it hasn't dated we still need to be thinking in these ways
4: well it's It's intriguing to me too, but this is a snapshot in time because this comes out in seventy seven and the Roswell case has been dormant and won't come back out until like the very early nineteen eighties so um Stanton Freeman and a few other people are involved in bringing that case out, and so that's what really relaunches the sort of paranoia and um dark conspiracy theory of cover-up sort of uh, narratives. And so you're in this really interesting spot here in history where there's a sense of wonder and asking questions, but there isn't that overall sense that everything's being suppressed. And now I think the sort of the cultural narrative around UFOs is, uh, uh, it seems a lot darker in tone. And I kind of miss this sort Mm -hmm. of wondrous curious light-hearted approach yeah it's it was a simpler time
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly exactly it's very much like that it it seems almost uh, less commercialized perhaps to think of that term
2: yes Um,
0: we've kind of touched upon this a little bit already but we've got a, a few final questions to ask you john of all of them which do you think would be your your favorite
1: i love the betty and barney hill case you know that they were um, they were an ordinary couple. They they weren't seeking any notoriety. They just wanted a quiet life. The last thing they would have wanted to do is to speak up and create such notoriety as describing a UFO a UFO encounter. Mm-hmm. But I'm intrigued by the description of supposedly there she was on board that alien craft and observing the star map where there were solid lines between some stars and dotted lines between others and under hypnosis she recalled this and it related to a a real star system and uh, zeta reticuli as i recall the lines between the various stars one of them was was the sun and the line to the sun was a solid line meaning it was a trade route and the others were dotted lines, which were just observational and exploratory. Mm-hmm. So imagine that uh, the Sun and our solar system is some kind of a trade route, maybe mm-hmm. the material on the Moon or on Mars, which is just a little out of sight of human observation. Um, but that, that always stands very strongly as a, a most intriguing case. So yeah, Betty and Barney Hill, I would speak of,
0: did, yeah, we did uh, an episode on the topic going back a few months ago. So yeah. It's definitely a classic uh, case.
4: I was going to say, do you listen to podcasts by any chance? I don't know if they're part of your audio experience normally.
1: Yes, I'm I'm, I'm learning about them much more. I'm I'm getting rather used to them. They are it, it it's so wonderful that anybody can do their own podcast and it's the audience who judge uh, which ones they go to. You know, it, it doesn't now need some program commissioner in an office to say it's okay. Right, right. right. make something and the audience will come if it's mm-hmm. if it's any good, you know. And that's um, I, I I do love listening to them, and I, it's something I'm discovering more and more.
4: It feels like a strange sort of. Uh... Verification of uh, Andy Warhol's "In the Future, Everybody Will Be Famous for Fifteen Minutes." I, I it's, <laughs> it's like, well, at least everybody will have a Whether podcast,
3: right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes.
4: But so, I was gonna, yeah, the, we talked to the host of a show called "Strange Arrivals," and uh, he. Oh, that's
1: a great title already. Oh, Love it's it's, it's so really informed.
4: good. It, it's a really really deep dive into the Betty and Barney Hill uh, story, uh, and I think it 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 I. I feel like, as someone who's been looking into this stuff for pretty much my whole life, I was surprised to actually learn a few new things there. So I highly recommend you check that out if you are interested, Strange no, Arrivals. I will,
1: I, will, I so. will. There was another couple of stories which um, I, I love as well, great fondness for. A 1977 BBC documentary called Out of This World. And there was a, a wonderful couple of characters there uh, called uh, Mrs. Joyce Bowles and the family friend Ted Pratt. And they where they uh, turned down a, a quieter road on, on the way back to their uh, home village and were confronted by a soft orange light on a, a craft which had landed on a verge. This then immobilised their car, a small mini-clubman. And emerging from this craft was a tall, almost like a Nordic alien, with piercing pink eyes, she described. He had very piercing pink eyes and soy bones. This creature walked towards my car, put its hand on my roof, and looked in. And I could, the, the sincerity with which they described what they had seen. And I had a call from a man from London who told me I am to say nothing about this. Well, this is England, and this is a free country, and I will say what I like. I, I love that spiritedness. And there was another lady called uh, Jessie Rostenberg. Uh, Once again, she spoke in this manner, a very sort of salt of the earth, uh, genuine person. And she saw a craft above uh, the family farmhouse, which contained um, some of those Nordic aliens looking down on her. And she described them hair like the old kings. Their faces were full of compassion. And they were very beautiful people. And I was frozen to the spot. But they looked at me with compassion. And then I looked away at my children. And when I looked back and it was gone. And I saw it shortly after. It orbited our house. It circled our house three times and shot off. And it was gone. And this is something that happened to me. And there it is. Beautifully sure. bizarre. I'd love to see something like yeah. that. But the sincerity with which she described it, mm-hmm. um, that that's what that they're worth looking up. Of. Out of this world, that yeah. BBC documentary of 1970. Oh, I've written
3: it
4: down. I, I'm definitely going to see if I can find it. I, I, I'm a uh, an obsessive collector of this sort of material. so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very impressed with that, uh, John. You could do your own radio show Oh, by for, yourself.
3: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I love the interview with a fellow called Gordon Crichton on there as well, an ex diplomat, very intelligent fellow, knew about 10 or 11 languages. And he became sort of a UFO investigator and UFO expert. He spoke about the Hopkinsville goblins and the Argentina alien, the seven-foot-tall one in a car factory. Um, He touched on the idea that these things could be coming from other realities, other dimensions that we can't understand and can't measure. And he had a very sort of uh, efficient military way about speaking. And he says, yes, I do think things are covered up. And I think very wisely. Uh, I don't think this is something that you can bring to the attention of everybody. Um, I think if many people knew what I know about this subject, they they might be very alarmed. Very alarmed indeed.
4: He's just like (laughs) Dr. Who's Brigadier.
1: (laughs) Yes,
3: exactly. Yes, Gordon Crichton. Yes, very learned fellow. Um, (laughs) Yes, I
1: think uh, UNIT has tried to uh, uh, make it work for us on a number of occasions. Yes, he he, he was just like the Brigadier or just like a Quatermass character, but the seriousness with which he spoke, um, fascinating. It's a delicious, delicious world. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: It sounds Mm -hmm. it. I'm I'm a very big fan of uh, Quatermass and of of Nigel Neal's work in general. So yeah, that's, are you, when you think of Quatermass, are are you thinking of just in general, all of them, or is there a particular one you like the most?
1: I I think generally, yes, I think just the atmosphere that it creates, even before a world is spoken, it's just the way that it gives you that sense of psychological fear and alertness, even before anything just gets going. And so much of that that fear created by not what you see, but what you don't see. Um, I, I love the universe of Quatermass and the John Pertwee era of Doctor Who as well. Uh, some of those stories are uh, Inferno and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Spearhead from Space. Yes, I, also, uh, I also love to take on the guise of John Pertree.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think if I saw a really good UFO, if I saw a UFO, i think to myself I would pretend to be John Pertree's Doctor Who. I would think, <laughs> how would he, he respond to this? How would he handle it? Uh, with great intelligence and great efficiency and a great degree of control. I'm sure that's what would take over my imagination. Either
4: that yeah. or Warzel gummage, <laughs> right? Hey, I know
3: you'll be coming in dead dirt by the ear, my thing. You go back and eat your reticulitis. <laughs> Rooks, <laughs> I scare away the oh, aliens as well. We've
0: got ten people for the price of one.
3: All right,
4: so we're going to spring Uh, something
0: on you. So, John, this this show is Monster Talk, so we we talk about all different kinds of monsters, and we have a signature question that we like to ask all of our guests just to to close the show, and that is, what's your favourite monster?
1: Ah, favourite monster, favourite monster. Um, I have to say, I think that 1969 cine film of uh, a Bigfoot walking across the... Californian forest, where a loaded oh, the- cine camera mm-hmm. uh, that is wonderful I remember seeing that on Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World and thinking, wow that was incredible, now I don't know whether I was i was having a chat with Brian Blessed uh, some months ago, and we were talking about this, and he said, oh yes, yes now I don't know whether he was just joking about it he said, oh yes, 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 that was uh, oh that, that, was, that, that was the wife of one of the the
3: uh, the horseman, one of the the forestry fellows. There she
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Blessed. I don't know whether Brian Blessed was just being mischievous. But I think I would have to say the Sasquatch at the edge of that uh, uh, Californian pine forest. Intriguing.
4: Bigfoot is uh, definitely one of our go-to. He's one of our signature monsters. I mean, he comes up on here all the time.
0: And the Patterson-Gimlin footage. <laughs> yeah.
4: Absolutely. Wow, Brian, Brian Blessed, uh, you know, uh, I would have thought he would have more to say about the Yeti with his mountain climbing experience. He's such an interesting character.
1: Yes, he you know, did talk about that. He, yeah, exactly, yes, I'm <laughs> full of volume. That was another conversation.
3: <laughs> I, I, I say it, people, people give me 20 pounds, and I say it for people's birthdays now.
1: Uh, he did actually talk about, um, we we were on a, a show over here, um it's a bit like The View. It's called Loose Women. Uh, it's a talk show. And uh, there was one episode some years ago where Brian Blessed and I were, were guests. And he did, in fact, allude to um, some of the mountaineering he's done. And he'd seen some of the Alma, yeti type creatures. And he said, it <laughs> was a very, they come in very bad temper, a very tall, bellowing creature. Great
3: deal of facial hair, bright red. And what a mad look in the eye. Intriguing
1: creature. And I thought, <laughs> Brian, was that just you? Perhaps looking in your shaving mirror.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. He's describing himself. What in the world?
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I oh, did, see, I caught my wife at the at the store today. She was we're walking down the aisle, and uh, and I said, "Ooh, look at that pretty lady!" And she swirled around to see who, like angrily, who is she? Go- and it was she, we we're walking past mirrors. <laughs> 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 that lovely moment where she goes from anger. And jealousy to, oh, oh, and that was kind of sweet. Yeah. You know, he's also kind of yeah. an idiot. But- <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, it's well, making me
1: think of other favorite monsters now as well. I love that. Uh, it, it, it's one of the real uh, scary, chilling YouTube clips. Uh I don't know whether these creatures are called the rake, where there are these uh, fellows just uh, stomping through uh, a forest with a, a camera going, and all of a sudden they see the reflected eyes and this sort of silvery creature bent over, very spindly thing, in some sort of bizarre yoga position. And it looks at them very quickly. And those eyes flash, and they're just <laughs> they're very, very quickly. Ooh. That's an intriguing one. That's a very intriguing one. It
4: is. I don't think I've seen oh, that one. I, I've seen a lot of this. Dif- yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm gonna, I'll look it up. It's yeah,
1: probably just sort of forest alien or something, that will take you into that.
4: For us, you know, we're a very skeptical science-oriented show. We typically use uh, monsters as sort of a springboard to talk about science topics. But we also like to just, like, try to solve mysteries if we can. And it's really hard to... I think after doing this for decades it, to just sort of sit back and enjoy some internet creepiness, you know, <laughs> we're always like, wait, how did they do that? It's like constantly yeah, deconstructing was
0: asking questions, so, <laughs> but,
4: but every now and then I get a good one, you know, or it will be uh, late at night and I'm, I'm just sort of surfing around and I, I come across something like that. And it's just so wonderful to still be able to feel creeped out, you know? Um,
1: yes. I think we enjoy it for, I think we are testing ourselves. We're, we're perhaps testing our own, fight-or-flight uh, system, and uh, because you, we we like to be in, in front of something that's frightening to us, but we, we know we can handle it. The safety net is there because it's just mm-hmm. an internet clip. I think you give yourself a little – you give your bravery a test run by watching these things. I think people who enjoy yeah. horror films, it's a similar thing. Yeah. Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. <laughs> yep. We need to wind up, but I, I wanted to say – where can people find you? Like, what's the best way to engage with your work?
1: Uh, yes, I, I do quite a lot of uh, work with uh, Big Finish Productions, who do all of the Doctor Who audio adventures. Ooh! And uh, yeah, I played I play the Brigadier and uh, Dead Ringers on the BBC, the topical comedy show. Um, we've got a series of that uh, coming through in December. And uh, we oh, wonder cool. which uh, political characters will be will be going along then. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> or my own my own Twitter feed, at John Colshaw. Um, I like to uh, occasionally, I'll put a few things on there. I don't do a great deal of social media because it slightly drives me mad. If you mm-hmm. can just uh, throw off the addictive sense, you know. Uh-huh,
4: uh-huh, for sure.
1: <laughs> but, but now and again, I'll pop something on there or have a quick look. Um so, yes, big finish, Dead winners, and, and my own Twitter feed, I suppose. Well,
4: fantastic. Well, oh, we'll put links really, to all that in the show notes. Yep.
0: Yeah, and uh, thank you for coming on the show, John. And it was really fun to to hear more about the book through your eyes. And uh, I hope that you get to see a UFO one day.
1: Oh, my goodness. I, I hope I can come back on the, on the show here and talk about it. Um, but thank you. What a pleasure to uh, to speak to you all. And thank you for having me on.
4: Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to all of you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thank you very much for your time.
4: Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
4: You just heard an interview with entertainer John Colshaw and the voices of lots of others discussing the children's book UFOs by Usborne, which was part of their World of the Unknown series. Thank you so much to John and all his friends for taking the time to talk with us today about this beautiful and thought-provoking children's book. We have lots more coming up soon because Karen and I have been hitting the microphones to discuss Caribbean tombs, paranormal Bigfoot, the Amityville case, and so much more. So stay tuned. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talks theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for your reviews and feedback. And thank you for sharing this show with others.
3: This has been a Monster House presentation. You're not fit yet? Not fit. I'm the doctor.
1: No, doctor. I'm the doctor and I say that you're not fit.
3: You may be a doctor, but I'm the doctor. The definite article, you might say.
1: Look here, doctor. You're not fit. Not
3: fit. Not fit. Of course I'm fit. All systems go.